And Josh, if if the if the banging gets too loud for you, let me know. What banging? My, this construction above my head, of course. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by those other hosts, that crazy double pack of hosts, Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Double pack just makes me think of a Twix, and I feel like we should expand our (laughs) our snack conversation (laughs) to Twix. Our snack coverage. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Leah Leibovitz. Coming to you live from an apartment with two kids doing Zoom school and construction in the apartment overhead. So I I heart New York. And I heart whatever your Wi-Fi server is, because... Because <laughs> that would drain me down to nothing. But you got something supercharged going there. The Mossad helped us out here. It was the Mossad dolphin. He went into the little like rafters and got in. He does house visits. <laughs> but the Mossad dolphin cannot get you a garbage disposal in a New York City apartment, right? Which are still illegal in New York City. Yes? I'll put it this way. A washing machine is illegal in my apartment building. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is illegal in my apartment building. I'm lucky to have socks. I was explaining to my kids the other day why they're the only Fremer children who have a garbage disposal because everyone else lives on the island to Manhattan, where that is forbidden by the High Council and the Secretariat. I did not have a garbage disposal growing up. And there was one time in college where we we're all sitting around and everyone was somehow were discussing garbage disposals and like how they had them. And I texted my mom and I was like, did we have a garbage disposal growing up? And she was like, are you high? And I was like, no. So decadent. But I just didn't, like, I just like never thought about it. I, she was like, why are you guys sitting around discussing this? I was like, I don't know. Is there a Jew Gentile angle here? Like, do, do Jews not have garbage disposals because we all pass? through New York City at some point. Right. Garbage disposal scare me about that like Final Destination movie. That sound is ominous, I gotta tell you. I don't need that kind of, that drama in my life. You know, there's enough people out there trying to get us that I don't need something in my apartment (laughs) trying to get me regularly. (laughs) Trying to mangle your hands. Is that the Jewish angle? (laughs) Trying to mangle up my hands. Uh, (laughs) The anti-Semite in the sink. Uh (laughs) Our guests this week, the first guests of 2021, both Jewish men. Our author, William Duresowitz, whose new book is about how exactly artists make a living or don't. It's a really depressing yet gripping book. It, it will depress you and yet compel you. And sports writer Yaron Weitzman. But before we get to those Jewish men, uh, let's get to another Jewish man, Liel Leibowitz. How are you, sir? So I've been uh, a little bit under the weather, which, of course, in the year 2020 sets everyone's bells ringing. Because like, oh, my God, you have COVID. So tested negative for COVID. And yet needed to go and have some more tests done. So I'm sitting at my doctor's office. He's a lovely gentleman who I've been seeing for 20 years now. And he says, well, you know, I need to do a sort of nasal swab. That's not a COVID swab, just a different kind of viral panel or whatever. And he's about to do it. And then he stops and he says, oh, mm, I forgot. They make you wear a gown now when you do the nasal swabs. I'm really sorry. I'll be right back. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is absurd. I mean, the bureaucracy. I know you're. A, I'm a patient in a doctor's office, and the etiquette is, and I'm supposed to be wearing a gown, but it's a nasal swab. Why do I have to take my clothes off? But you know, the doctor said, you need a gown. And so wanting to expedite it, I strip to my underwear, and I stand there patiently, and the door opens, and the doctor walks in wearing a gown. And he looks at me, and he says, you realize the gown was for me, right? And I was like, sure. He's like, uh, why are you in your underwear? What kind of relationship do you think we have? <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to put my pants back on right now, doctor. It's fine. I thought you were like rooting around for a gown for yourself. You were like open to the front or the back? 
<laughs> Where's my gown, doctor? You're in a gown. He's in a gown. All of a sudden, the music in the room changes. It's it's a whole different thing. We both couldn't stop laughing <laughs> for the remainder of that visit, and he had to like he had to do the nasal swab. It's like his hands are shaking because he's laughing hysterically at this moron who's standing there in his socks and his underwear. It was beautiful. But like, I also imagine you like fuming about the bureaucracy, and then he walks in and he's in the robe. But he's <laughs> the only one who has to deal with the bureaucracy. I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense that you would need to wear a gown. <laughs> Very hygienic. Carry on. Uh, Speaking of morons, do you think you're a moron? I'll show you moron. I'm the moron here, Liel. You'll remember how last week I'd gotten an email from someone who wanted to know if I was related to one Lillian Oppenheimer, who apparently brought origami to America. And you both were very insistent, Liel and Stephanie, that I must be, right? How, In what kind of universe would there be an origami maven named Lillian Oppenheimer and a Jewish podcast host named Mark and us not to be it's just unfair. The princess of the paper fold must be a relative. <laughs> so whom could I put this question to? But of course, multiple time Jew of the week, AJ Jacobs, who has written a book on how people are related to each other. So I reached out to him. I said, AJ, hook a brother up. I need to know, am I related to Lillian Oppenheimer? So he gets back to me. <laughs> I like to think that he loves this. I like to think that I'm not one of the lots of people who annoy him with these questions and that he's just being game, but that he's, I'm really giving him an opportunity to take a break from more boring work. It's like being a dentist and you, like someone sees you in a restaurant, I'm like, excuse me, can you look at my crown? So he sends me, he immediately writes back and he says, oh, ho, ho, you're not closely related to her. In fact, you're not really related to her, but I can tell you what link there is. It's through marriage. And according to the little thing they give you at the top, it says, Mark Oppenheimer is Lillian Rose Kruskal Oppenheimer's uncle's great aunt's husband's first cousin twice removed, husband's second cousin thrice removed. (laughs) (laughs) It's like offensive how unrelated you are. We are are like about, there may be no two Ashkenazi Jews who both lived at some point in the 20th century more distant or further apart than me and Lillian Oppenheimer. She does enter into the family, though, through the Klees, K-L-E-E. And I did once know one of my Klee cousins who was famous in my family for trying to pass himself off as a Presbyterian. He, in fact, went to his Presbyterian minister with his wife and said, we can be Presbyterians, right? And the guy said, well, do you believe in this Jesus stuff? You know, do you, do you want to be join our great Scottish Calvinist tradition that is Presbyterianism? To which the cousin said, no, do you? Does anybody? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> or, or Mr. Klee, are you, you just trying to sort of piece on out of the whole Jewish thing? And I think as the story went in my family, old man Klee sort of slunk off with his Jewish horns between his legs and said, I guess I, I guess I just have to die a Jew. So we are related through those people, but it ain't close. So alas, I'm sorry. Alas, <laughs> I don't have, I don't have origami yichas. Though you do have other types of yichas because I recently watched my favorite video of the year, which is the Oppenheimer Year in Review, which your wife, Sid Oppenheimer, sends out. And it is like a photo montage with video and it goes through the year. And I watched it. I saved it. I actually saved it and watched it the other night. And I I really enjoy it. Like I really, it's really fun. I have to say that this is not yet like an HBO television show is just (laughs) a huge oversight. I mean, come on. (laughs) Well, she starts, you know, those year, those best of lists that come out in November and you're like, wait a second, wait a second. The year's not the race is not even run yet. (laughs) Sid starts working on the year-end video sometime in July or August. But it's a lot of photos to, like, I get it. It's a lot of photos. And then she has to decide which video of which kid. Like, we get the Ellie gymnastics. That was my highlight, I have to tell you. Okay, she's so good at gymnastics, it's crazy. But Clara singing an original song about masking up and staying home was (laughs) probably one of my favorite things. You're not able to be together. 
It is hard, that I know, but it will end if you stay at home. Uh, David going la 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 la, trying to sing to him. Dave, yes, David's lolling zoomed ahead in 2020. Like the rest of us might have been kvetching about what a terrible year it was, but nobody grew more in his use of nonsense syllables than David Walter Oppenheimer. And he turned two. I, I, I learned so much. I now know how old all your children are. I don't know. I just like, I like seeing the interactions. I learn a lot. Well, thank you. I'm going to pass that on to her. I also saw you in a bathing suit. <laughs> I don't think I've seen before. Nota bene, it is not a Speedo, as my friend Adam Andrzejczyk queried in a text after getting it. Is, it was definitely a short bathing suit. It's a sort of half, it's a European length. Uh, <laughs> it, it's definitely not a board short. It's definitely no, something. They're European length briefs. Because you, know, and you know, anytime, Mark, that you describe an article of man's fashion as European, that's, that's good. People really like that. <laughs> Great connotations for that. It's a Belgian length mid-thigh tight suit. It's, it's the full Luxembourg. <laughs> the, the full Luxembourg. Full waffle. <laughs> that is a, Liel, I will not be harassed by you on my own show. Do not, that is dirty. It is not the full Luxembourg. <laughs> news of the Jews. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. Uh-huh. Let us move on to the news of the other Jews out there. What the heck is going on? Liel, do you have any news for us this week? So a lot of amazing news from the motherland. Belgium? Of, of course, from <laughs> straight from Ghent. <laughs> Some good news this week. So Israel, the country that needs four different election cycles just to decide who will be prime minister, has now surpassed literally every other country in the world with delivering the COVID vaccines. They have delivered more than a million. It is an unbelievable thing to behold. They are efficient in a way that sort of like defies belief. They have a WhatsApp group that lets you know if you sign on, if there's any leftover things next to your house. And you could just pop out at like nine or 10 at night if there are any leftovers and like get the vaccine like impromptu. They give you coffee and or a crembo, you know, those like amazing Malamar-like cookies when you get the vaccine. Wait, it's like donating blood? You get free sweets? Here's how insane it is. So my mother had an appointment for last Wednesday. Monday morning, she's like, I don't want to wait that long. It's two whole days, right? Meanwhile, here, people probably be waiting until 2025. So she walks in to her clinic and says, can I have it? And the doctor says, sure, here it is. <laughs> That's the Israeli, may I have some vaccine, please? Right. It's, can I have it? <laughs> right. Please, sir. And then she says, okay, but my husband's my husband's here too. And the doctor's like, I'm sorry, you know, like uh, we don't have that many. And he's like, but, but he's not feeling well. He's already right here. And the doctor's like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> It's just, they set up like a massive tent that's open 24-7. Open on all sides. On all sides, welcoming all guests, all sick people. In the center of Tel Aviv, in Rabin Square, you could just walk in, have your like online appointment. Amazing. You know, the post office has like carnivals on tax day, like April 15th. Sometimes there'll be a New Orleans jazz band playing there. There'll be people roller skating outside. I have no idea what you're talking about. Someday when you pay your taxes, when you do your own taxes, you will find (laughs) out... No, I've never done my own taxes. Who am I kidding? Yeah, sometimes like midnight, April 15th, 
they will stay open late. Oh, because they work. Okay, because they're mailing the things. Everyone's because right. it's yeah, tax okay. day. This is how in New Haven everything's a festival, and there will be you know someone will be giving out butterscotch crimpets, and people will be dancing. There'll be a disco ball, and there'll be a jazz line parade, and whatever. I'm imagining that's the COVID vaccine tent in the center of Tel Aviv squares. Like the breast lovers are out. They're dancing on top of the Winnebago. There's techno music playing. So here's my question. Why is it so efficient? Is it like, how is it that there is so much efficiency here when all we've been doing for the past few weeks is just talking about how inefficient Israel as a country is? Uh, (laughs) Small country with a tradition of sort of socialized medicine on a scale that actually works. They have this thing called kupot cholim, which is a term that's very, very difficult to translate, but it's basically like local clinics that have been surveying you and your health since literally the moment you were born. So there is very good data about everyone's pre-existing conditions and great ways to contact everyone and a population that is adept at kind of, you know, mobilizing at a drop of a pin. And there you have it. The drop of a what? Pin. Oh, it's a new metaphor. I like that. No, they, you drop a pin on your phone and they tell you where to get the vaccine. Isn't that the expression? The, the drop of a pin? Drop of a hat. The drop of a hat. Drop of a, but I like pin better. It's actually because like it's quieter. No, because you drop a pin on your phone and you get the ways directions there. And you get the ways direction. Plus, look, an insane amount of high tech, which is really great because they all have apps to like register for everything. Like every single clinic has its own little thing that you press a button and then it sends you a text message and then a WhatsApp appears and then you tweet and then then you get the vaccine. Meanwhile, I got a COVID test the other week and it was the kind of self-serve ones, but you basically had to wait online outside this, this hospital building, go inside there. They registered you on an iPad for this like service, not like Pixel, something like that. It's called Picture. Like a thing I could have definitely done outside by myself because I've registered for things before and I know how to do it. So then like, the, the real holdup was that they register you and they ask you like, what is your address? Let me see. Like, there was just like so much back and forth. And I'm like, why are we having human contact right now? Why didn't you just ask me to do this before? And then they had to be the thing. It took 30 seconds to do the thing myself. But look, in New York City, you still have to stand in line for two, three hours just to get the test. And the city has applied only one third of all the vaccines it currently has. So joke, I guess, is on me, having moved literally <laughs> the most efficient place at the moment to this uh, third world banana republic of a city. In all seriousness, can Israel hook any Jew up? If I fly there, can I get the vaccine? Oh, I have so many friends who are now coming in, quarantining for two weeks just to get the vaccine. Yeah. I could do that. Wait, do you have to be Israeli? Uh, I don't know if you can. Israelis can. I can. You can make Aliyah and then and then return two weeks later. <laughs> What's the law of return for if not for me to go get the COVID vaccine? Well, it's to get the return vaccine, the second right. one. <laughs> Oh, I see. It's like, I'm Mike Oppenheimer. I make Aliyah two weeks later. I'm Mike Oppenheimer. I changed my mind. <laughs> I like this uh, this risk calculation. I will get on the flight to go to Israel. <laughs> totally. Totally. To get some socialized medicine and a free Jewish vaccine. But guys, this is not the real news out of Israel. The real news out of Israel is that this is a little known fact, but there is a war brewing very seriously between Israel and its arch nemesis, Iran. Last week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu decided in order to raise awareness for some charity that helps the elderly, decided to record a pop song together in a duet with the winner of, I think, the X Factor, one of Israel's singing talent shows. And they covered a classic, a nice pop song by Eric Einstein, which is Israel's most beloved singer, and it was a real big thing. Yes, be a 
אומרים שיש עוד תקווה, קוראים לזה אהבה, ומחכים לבואם. Not to be outdone, the Islamic Republic decided to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the head of the IRGC, the, the Iranian militias, with a pop song of its own. And the best way to commemorate Qasem Soleimani's death, of course, is with a pop song in which language? Farsi. Incorrect. The correct answer would be Hebrew. They released a mighty fine Hebrew song announcing to everyone that they are planning revenge. Wait, that is crazy. That is like a real sub-tweet something-something. <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> And I'm thinking like, this to me is how wars should be fought in the 21st century. Like every country... gets to have its leaders release one pop song, and then we vote. It's Eurovision to the death. It's basically Eurovision, yeah. Or like American Idol. It's like, yeah, Iranians, this is your song? Well, here's Bibi singing for old people. You know what? I, that's the thing I actually don't want to hear. I do not want to hear Bibi singing. I don't want to hear my politicians singing. You don't want to hear Mitch McConnell and uh, Kevin McCarthy doing a duet? I do. I will say, like, having watched the Will Ferrell movie Eurovision, which was actually just, like, so much better than I thought it would be. I mean, it was just so delightful. When they do the song along, which I guess is just a sing along, I think this I would watch the song along version of this, like the the battle in um pitch perfect, you know, so are some Israelis now going to tweet back at the Iranians as it were, with a song in Farsi saying, "Yeah, you will not no it's a, it's a here's here's the funny thing about this. This is a long standing tactic. Hamas does this all the time too. They release these pop songs in Hebrew, the goal of which I assume is to scare the Israelis into submission because they're all like, We will kill you. We will murder you. But the songs are so freaking good that they become these <laughs> huge party anthems in Israel. And like DJs remix them. They're like wedding favorites. People are like having a blast. Wait, is that true? Yeah, they're great. They take like Hamas threat songs and remix them totally. for bar mitzvahs. Listen to this thing. They're great songs. They're like great, you know, Mediterranean <laughs> pop songs with like a cool little lilt. What's not to love? If only these guys did more music and less, you know, <laughs> terror. <laughs> I'll be okay. Song along, song along. More music, less murder. William Derezowitz is the author of several books, including most recently, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. As a refugee from the incredibly lucrative world of dance criticism, he himself has had to think about how people with important but not always marketable skills are making it these days. And he's also, he's just a mensch. Liel and I had a great conversation with him way back in late 2020. By the way, my mom doesn't like the interviews that I don't do, so she likes a heads up in advance. So mom, I will not be on this interview. <laughs> <laughs> w 
William Jurasowitz is an author, a scholar. He's written books about Jane Austen and about college students. That one was called Excellent Sheep. So you can infer the argument from the title. But his new book is called The Death of the Artist. And I read it and immediately, well, I did something I don't always do, which was I called him. I happened to have his number and I called him to say, dude, wicked good book, as we say in Massachusetts. He was recently reviewed in The New Yorker, which called him a Henry Adams-like figure. And having never read The Education of Henry Adams, knowing very little about Henry Adams, I didn't know if that was a compliment or an insult. But he'll explain that and much else to us. We are so pleased to welcome William Terezowitz to Unorthodox as our Jew of the Week. <laughs> Thank you. And just to start off, like you're, you're a serious Jew. Didn't you go to Jew high school and Jew camp and stuff? Jew grade school, Jew high school, several varieties of Jew camp. Yeah. What are your alma maters? Give us some names because our listeners will really vibe with that. Mariah School in Englewood, New Jersey. Then I went to Frisch High School until I was asked to leave. <laughs> you were thrown out of Orthodox High School. Yeah, I wasn't officially thrown out. They let <laughs> me finish the year. There was just a very clear understanding that I would not be welcome back. The correct term is excommunicated, I believe. Uh, why were you excommunicated from Frisch? I would say gross insubordination and incipient <laughs> atheism. My words, not theirs. I stumbled upon a copy of Civilization and Its Discontents. How's that for Jewy? In the school library, and it kind of crystallized my sense that maybe the stuff I was being taught was not what I believed anymore. I mean, Frisch can't realistically put Freud in their library and then expect you not to read it. I mean, what were they thinking? Exactly. I have no idea. I think they didn't really know what was in there. He's Jewish. We'll put him in the library. Jesus, Freud, Marx, throw all the Jews in. <laughs> to be honest, it's probably because it had discontent in the title. They're like, yeah, this fits right in with us. Bill, you have the great distinction of having proudly washed out of academia, what, 10 or 12 years ago. There's a theme there. Notice there's a theme in my That's life. <laughs> Washing out of institutional structures. And since that time, you've written some really wonderful books. And the latest one, which is the one we're here to talk about, is The Death of the Artist. How'd the artist die? What's happening to the artist? What's the argument of your book? Nobody can make a living anymore. That's the argument. And this came out before the pandemic. I mean, basically, it's a bunch of different things. It's mainly the way the internet has just driven the price of content to zero or near zero. I mean, you can think of Napster, which was 1999. And it just cut the legs out from under the music industry. And if you're a writer, Amazon has driven advances down. Google and Facebook have stolen all the ad traffic from journalism. You guys are probably familiar with that. That's cut freelance fees in some cases by 90%. So that's, that's on the revenue side. And on the expense side, rents are up 42%. Since 2000, that's in real dollars and a lot more in the kinds of places that artists, especially young artists, tend to feel like they need to live. New York, L.A., Chicago, wherever. Tuition costs. So basically, I mean, you know, artists have always had it tough, obviously, but it used to be the case that if you were kind of a mid-tier artist, successful at a moderate level, you produced, you had the respect of your peers, you know, some standing in the field, that was like a middle-class job description. And now it's basically a working-class job description which means you're poor. Probably 50 to 100 pages in, I found myself thoroughly convinced that what you are talking about isn't just, well, you know, it's just another wave of ebbs and flows of difficulties that poor, tender, artistic souls have always faced, but really something approaching world historical catastrophe that almost seems like the death of art, period. Is that overdoing it? There have always been ebbs and flows. I think this is a very serious ebb. You know, is it threatening? Will there be art? I mean, there will be art. Human beings always create. We will always continue to create. The question is on what terms? And can we have artists who have a chance to develop long-term over the course of a career 
to get to the point where they're making mature work, to sort of evolve through different phases of their careers the way David Bowie did, Bob Dylan did, Picasso did? Or is art going to be something that only amateurs do or only very young people do before they wash out? And only a very small handful of blockbuster superstars will survive, which means that the kind of art we get will only be art that's very suited to make an immediate impact in the market. In other words, not so much will art survive, but what kind of art is it going to be? And who's going to be able to do it? What is it about this particular behemoth, the Google industrial complex or the internet industrial complex, that manages to eclipse, overdue, consume so much so quickly? Why are we so beholden to it in, in ways that it seems, you know, previous systems of influence and capital weren't quite so pervasive. First of all, these platforms have the ability to gather to themselves, it seems, every form of production. I mean, just think about it in the arts. You know, you used to listen to music on your stereo or on the radio. You would go to the theater to watch movies. You'd read books that were actual books. Now everything happens on the same platform, right? Everything happens through the internet. And the internet is dominated by these, you know, basically we're talking about Facebook, Google, and Amazon, if we're talking about the real actors in the arts economy. We're all on them. We're all on them constantly. You know, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, YouTube, which is owned by Google. The whole attention, what people call the whole attention economy, which includes the way that we consume or enjoy art has been concentrated in this very limited number of places. And I can't think of a historical analogy for that. One of the criticisms that the somewhat pissy New Yorker review yes. had of you. Yes, it was. He couldn't disagree with it. You weren't wrong about anything, but he found your points annoying. And one of the critiques was that you were being an elitist, that the kind of art that was being, you know, opera was having problems but self-starter DJs in their basement have never had it better. They can cut a single and put it up on various platforms and bypass all the gatekeepers. They don't need an MFA. They don't need a patron. They don't need connections. How did you feel about that? This was actually one of the hypotheses that I started the book wanting to investigate. Like, is it really better now in a lot of ways? First of all, I don't deal very much with elite art in the book. I kind of made a point of not introducing my own taste filters into the artists that I interviewed, the artists that I profile. Right. You were you were a dance critic. I mean, I don't even talk about dance hardly at all in the book, which I felt bad about because I was a dance critic and I love dance. But seriously, I mean, and I was an English professor, but I don't take an elite lens. I mean, if you look at the two dozen artists that I profile in those four chapters on, you know, music writing, visual art, film and television. They're not elite artists. Maybe a couple of them are, but there's a rapper. There's a guy who writes pop songs. There's a woman who fronts a neo-Motown girl group because she realized that if she wanted to get licensing deals, she needed to make her music distinctive. So it's very specifically not a book about, oh my God, arts have become so dumbed down, so demotic, so coarse, and what's happened to high art. It's not that book at all. And the answer to the DJ in the basement is there are a million people who are being DJs in their basement. And we only hear about the ones who managed to break out and win Emmys and gold records. That's the problem is that in theory, it's easier for everyone to circumvent the gatekeepers. You know, you can bring your stuff directly to the public. That's the great promise of the Internet. And it's true. It's just that everyone else is doing it, too. Here we are in a podcast. I don't know what your listenership is. I imagine it's... Nine billion. Okay, so you're in the top... <laughs> no. no, you know how many podcasts there are now, right? Approximately. 
a million. There are a million podcasts. That's the latest estimate I saw. So the point is, some of them are Joe Rogan's, or one or two of them are. A few of them are unorthodox, that has a healthy listenership. And the other 990,000, nobody listens to it all. Like not even your mom is listening. Not even your mom is listening. So that's the answer to that argument. It's also, I think, more nefarious. And this, and this is also a point that you you make in the book, is that there are still gatekeepers. They're just unseen algorithmic overlords that have the power to basically channel whatever attention they want to whatever end that meets their own needs. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm being naive. I think the algorithms operate unconsciously. In other words, there's no intention behind them. They simply amplify what's already being amplified. They sort of make viral what's already viral. I'm also saying there are other gatekeepers, including new gatekeepers. It's just when you don't like someone, you call them a gatekeeper. And when you do like them, you call them a curator. I mean, you guys are gatekeepers in the sense that you decide who you have on your show. And that's fine. I'm not against that. It's just this idea that the gatekeepers are all dead. Absolutely. There was this myth, I think, especially in the early internet, that people would just go browse and find stuff and that everyone was kind of on equal footing to be found. Right. And you still see that a little bit with Patreon, which if you go to Patreon, there's this sort of expectation that there are people out there looking for stuff to fund. Like you can click on podcast. You can click on comics. You can click on, you know, films. Oh, I'll, I'll find. But the reality is the vast majority of people who go to give some money through one of these platforms in the new economy are going because some gatekeeper, whether it's an algorithm or a curator or a critic or an influencer has said, go fund this thing. So, I mean, there still are promoters who are sending you to that band in a sense. We're not all out there saying like, hey, I've got some shekels. Like, what am I going to throw it at? I'll just browse 12,000 indie bands and see which one I happen to like. No one does that. No, no one does that. In fact, I talked to an executive at Kickstarter and she specifically told me that, that people don't go on Kickstarter just to browse. She actually said they go because their friends asked them. And that's a big factor too that we haven't mentioned yet. When we talk about who's going to be able to make art, a lot of the answer is people who already have money or who have access to money. In other words, who have friends who have money and who can help fund them on Patreon on or Kickstarter. So another one of the myths is that, you know, in this even playing field that the internet was going to give us is that it was going to erase advantages of wealth, of race, of gender. But in fact, that's not true because those advantages are also amplified by the new systems. So I could ask questions about the sort of like 60,000 foot view of this issue all day long. And, and I want to get back to it at some point. But I don't want to actually lose track of, of what makes the heart of the book, which is the staggering stories of the way these artists live. I mean, you, you didn't just write a book of sociology here. You actually dove right in with these people and tried to figure out how it was that they lived, mostly by taking on dozens of very strange, sometimes heartbreaking jobs. I want to kind of get in your head. What was it like? As you're spending some time, I don't know if you did it in person or virtually, with talented, young, persistent, wonderful people as they drive their Ubers, you know, as they rush from one meaningless job to another, trying to gather together sometime in a weekend or at two o'clock in the morning so they could do the thing that they actually want to do. I did these long interviews with people. First of all, it was really moving just to hear people's stories, just to hear them talk about things that people don't talk about normally, which is how you make your living and what the actual dollar figures are. It could also be heartbreaking in exactly the way that you just said, hearing how much these people are putting up with, how long they've been persevering for sometimes what little financial rewards. And it was really inspiring. I mean, I know that that might sound sentimental. I didn't expect this. I mean, obviously I did this project to a great extent because 
I love the arts and I, I really have respect for artists and the talent and their creativity, but the actual, you know, qualities of character, perseverance and resilience and single-mindedness of purpose and unwillingness to be discouraged and bravery. I mean, and, and on top of everything else, you get so much crap from the world if you want to be an artist, if you say you're an artist, if you're a kid, if you're a teenager, if you're a young person, you know, supposedly it's different in other countries in Europe or in, I don't know, Japan, where the artist is respected. This is not America. In America, people are like, you're stupid. You're crazy. Why are you doing this? Nobody cares. Why do you think you have a right to do this? So in the face of all of that, they persevere and bring, I think, also sometimes a lot of optimism, a lot of joy. Yeah. One of the sad things for me in reading your book was how you point out that we're getting less art from some of our favorite people. Because if as a singer, you have to be on the road all the time, because the only way to really make money is to play a lot of shows and sell merchandise at the shows, then you're actually, you have less time back home to rehearse your band, write new songs and go into the studio and make albums. And you pointed out that in the seventies, serious artists were coming out with an album a year. And now they'll go four or five years in between works because they just have no time. It's hard to write. You know, who was your, you had one example of a really famous person who was, was it Rihanna? Oh yeah. That's from uh, John Seabrook's book, The Song Machine, where she's recording music in the parking lot of the stadium after the show right. in a trailer. Because she has to be on the road all the time. All the time. We could project that across all of the arts because the amount of self-marketing, self-promotion, self-production, this and that. I mean, anyone who publishes a book knows just how much crap you have to do around the book to try to get the word out. And yeah, and it means less time. I don't think people understand that. I mean, I think the audience is like, oh, it's great. Everything's free. You know, musicians who complain about it are just rich rock stars and they're spoiled. But this is actually hurting us, too. I mean, you talked to, is it Kim Deal from the Pixies? Who's like yeah. living back at home in her hometown in Ohio somewhere. Right, in Dayton. Try to figure out how to make the next record. That's exactly right, right. And her father calls her music her hobby now Oof. because that's, that's what it's been reduced to, right. And her stuff was like the soundtrack to my college years. And so uh, where is our call to revolution? What do we do? How do we break this? How do we break this awful machine? Or are we doomed? Well, I don't think we're doomed. I think the answers are big answers though. They're not like little fixes. I mean, the ultimate answer is that we need to, I know this is kind of a big answer. When we've created a, an economy that's just for everyone, that will take care of a lot of these problems without even having to touch the arts economy. Like things like rent and tuition and healthcare and just, you know, and what's the wage scale for your day jobs if you're driving for Uber or Lyft, if you're pulling shots or waiting tables? But in the arts economy, again, it comes down mainly to the platforms. These companies just have so much power. I mean, they're extracting tens of billions of dollars a year from artists for themselves, right? It's not like there's no money in demonetized content. There's a lot of money. It's just going to the platforms. So A, you break up the companies where they can be broken up. But the platforms themselves, the core businesses can't be broken up because the whole point is that they're one. They're like utilities. They have to be one thing, you know, one Facebook, one Google. So then you regulate them. You regulate them the way we regulate other utilities, where we set rates and we intervene very forcefully in the market. It's interesting. I've read, I happen to have read three books lately, all of which basically end with the same argument. And they have nothing in common. One is Kurt Anderson's Evil Geniuses. One is Freddie DeBoer's The Cult of Smart. And the other one is The Death of the Artist by William Jarezowicz, all of which talk about how we're screwed in different ways. They each are looking at different problems, one the education system, one the arts, one really the financial sector. And all of them basically end with, 
We need more trust busting and more regulation. And to some extent, I can't remember if you make this point, we need a universal basic income or a social safety net that looks a lot more like one. And once you do that, a lot of educational reforms sort of get dissolved because the stakes aren't as high. You stop worrying as much about SAT points, Frederick DeBoer argues, because a college degree doesn't matter quite as much and getting a master's doesn't matter quite as much and the eliteness of your college doesn't matter quite as much because you're not going to starve if you're only a high school graduate or if you go into the trades or the arts, which is the same thing you're saying about the arts, which is a point Kurt Anderson is making, just that the fundamental injustice of the fact that we all get thrown to this economy that has fewer and fewer different ways to make a good living needs some very big fixes that will make a lot of these other problems seem smaller. I think that's absolutely right. And forgive me for saying so, but I said some of that at the end of Excellent Sheep too, six years ago, which is, you know, if we're going to address the problem, the crazy system of elite education where kids are competing to get into one of 12 schools, how are we really going to fix that? It's not about making admissions to those 12 schools more equitable because the whole problem is that it's only 12 schools. Inshallah. I know you didn't ask me this, but I want to say this anyway. Any young person who's listening or parent of young person who's listening or whatever, I would say to someone who aspires to a career in the arts, I would say go for it, but go for it with eyes open. Know A, how hard it's going to be and B, that at some point when you're 30 or 35 or whatever, you may come to a realization that you need to do something else with your life. But I'm not going to be one of those people who tells young artists that they're stupid and shouldn't do it because we need those people and we need to give them not only financial support, but psychological support. William Teresowitz, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. I know that the people at, at the Frisch School in New Jersey are kicking <laughs> themselves for not letting you back junior year. Right. Thanks for having me on. Hey, friends, I don't know if you'd quite call it a live show, but I'll tell you something. When we do Zoom shows, we come alive. It's pretty good. It's the next best thing to living in pre-COVID or post-COVID times. And we have one of these live shows January 11th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Beth Sholem Congregation in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. That's just right outside of my ancestral home of Philadelphia. Our guests will be Jamie and Brian Stelter, and we invite you to join us. The whole world can join us. That's the magic of the internet. Go to bit.ly slash uobethsholom. That's bit.ly slash uobethsholom to find out more. And we will see you on January 11th. Also, if you don't get enough of us on the 11th, uh, come on the 14th. Um, or if you miss us on the 11th, come on the 14th. We will be at the Temple Emanuel Strikers Center discussing our book, The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia. Again, this is virtual. This is via the magic of the internet. If you want to hear us talk about The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia, the NJE, January 14th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, go to striker.nyc. I'm going to spell that for you. It's S-T-R-E-I-C-K-E-R.nyc. That's striker.nyc. And we'll see you on January 11th or 14th. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. 
Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. First off, I continue to occupy my copious amounts of free time by looking at the vacation replies that we get for people. And I was <laughs> particularly charmed when our newsletter went out this week and one of the bounce backs said, I am on vacation. Please contact eSuite at JewsForJesus.org if you need immediate assistance. Hey, Jews for Jesus. Thanks for listening. I need immediate assistance. I just need help figuring out why you're not Christians. Is that too much to ask? Do the Jews for Jesus go on vacation? I feel like they are working all the time. They don't take a break. <laughs> Jews for Jesus, stop lurking by listening to our podcast. Send us some mail. You know, tell us what you really think. Don't be coy. Don't try to lure us in with talk of Moshiach. Send us a proper letter. Lay it on us. Lay it on us. Back to the autocorrect thread from a couple months ago. It's the gift that keeps giving. Jackie Simon tweeted at us the most unfortunate autocorrect error ever. Somebody was trying to say Tova, or, you know, to the good of what's to come, which is what you say to a pregnant woman. You don't say Mazel Tov. You say Tova, And it came out Tova. <laughs> good Holocaust to you. I have to say that is the most niche phone that knows enough about <laughs> Judaism to know right. Shoah. <laughs> Fair point. My phone can't even do like, Hanukkah. How do I get that widget? It's the ducking Shoah. Liel, you got some mail correcting your pathetic attempt to translate hangover into Hebrew. You want to you wanna read that letter for us? I sure do. Hi, Unorthodox. My name is Lee, and I live in Israel. Just wanted to correct Liel about the Hebrew word for hangover, in case nobody has done it yet. The term is chamarmoret, which is pronounced chamarmoret and not chamarmeret, as was <laughs> pronounced on the podcast. But usually, we just say hangover with heavy Israeli accents, like uh, hangover. Happy 2021. Hope you don't have any chamarmoret. It's a funny word, isn't it? From getting drunk in front of Zoom, Lee Halevi. What an amazing email to receive. And what an amazing <laughs> word. I have to say that I got a note from Esther on Instagram, a DM. Listener Esther Ann slid into my DMs and said, 
Speaking of Israeli film titles, she says the best Israeli movie title is Yesh Lebetsim instead of She's the Man, that Amanda Bynes movie, that like Shakespeare retelling. It literally translates to She's Got Balls. Correct. And it's a soccer movie. And it's in English, it's called She's the Man. Incredible. If that movie was even able to be improved upon, which I actually think is probably problematic now. I don't haven't watched it in a while, but... Um, Although I will say that the translation actually doesn't mean balls. It literally means testicles. It's not interchangeable in Hebrew. I'm just saying that it's a soccer movie. <laughs> Titled, She's Got Testicles. Now, finally, we got a letter into, in our inbox that I didn't put into our shared Google Doc, so you guys haven't seen it. Why? Because it was simply too long. It actually would have crashed all of Google. It was from listener Amy Kroll, who was very upset with Liel and me, I guess, as well, but she seemed to take out her anger on Liel for underestimating, quote, the marvel that is ice hockey. She writes, since Liel's first comment and my original Facebook posting, Liel has commented on ice hockey on more recent episodes, suggesting that this tutorial remains necessary. Suggesting that it's a pastime for drunk bears in the woods. <laughs> yes, correct. That's how I feel. If you're a bear and found a stick in an acorn, that's a great game for you. I love that Liel's even more insane on this topic than I am because I am i didn't know that I had any competition in my disdain for ice hockey. But a couple things. First of all, Amy Kroll, we love you. Thank you for being in community with us as a correspondent. This is great. There's a lot of important knowledge buried in here, including the fact that there's a guy named Zac Efron who plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Apparently, there's Jewish Zac Efron. I mean, there's some, some deep Jewish ice hockey knowledge. Your letter is longer than most books I've read. You care so deeply about Jews and ice hockey. Your passion is simply without peer. And Liel hasn't read the letter yet, but I want you to know, Amy Kroll, that if anyone beats him into submission and causes him to reevaluate his disdain for ice hockey, it shall be you and your debut epistolary effort of 2021. I will say that the Great Neck Bruins, you could not be cooler in Great Neck North Middle School if you had the Bruins hockey jacket and it said like, Jonathan on the front. Nothing was cooler. <laughs> Wait, were they a real, they were the local? Yeah, it was the ice hockey team. You're really selling it, Stephanie. I'm really intrigued now. <laughs> Every Friday night in middle school, you'd go to the ice skating rink and you'd circle around and then they'd play Casey and JoJo's all my life. And then you'd like pair off to hold hands. On Friday night? Yeah. That's a strong argument for the Jewishness of ice hockey. Right. Well, everyone in there was Jewish. I mean, it was just ice skating. But I'm just saying that the guys wearing the hockey jackets were very cool. And they were all Jewish. How are your skills on skates, Stephanie? Not bad. It's funny. My mom says that that's one of her least favorite places in the world. So they'd have to just like shuttle us there all the time. I don't know. It's the it's where Sarah Hughes, Olympic gold medalist, got her start. So I, it's good enough for me. And Jewish, Sarah Hughes. Did I ever tell you, there was literally one ice skating rink in Israel when I was growing up. It was right on the Lebanese border. And its name was Park Canada. Canada Park. That's it. And now they're actually doing COVID vaccines there. That's very true. You had to go to Lebanon, basically, in order to ice skate in Canada, which was by Lebanon. Could you see Lebanon from the rink? You could. You literally can Friends, send us a letter, shorter than Amy's or longer, whatever your pleasure is. Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us 914 Guest this week is Yaron Weitzman. He's a basketball journalist and the host of the best named podcast ever, Weitzman Can't Jump. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta wait for it. He's also the author of a book about the Philadelphia 76ers, which is actually very interesting, even if you are not interested in sports. And since the NBA season is starting up again, we wanted to share our interview with him, recorded in the forgotten year of 2020.
Weitzman, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Tell us about the process, which is what your book is all about, and what happened over the last decade with the Philadelphia 76ers, and why this team is secretly the most interesting team in the NBA. Basically, the idea was they had a GM, a new GM come in, and he essentially decided we're going to be really bad for many years in order to be really good. Kind of like if anyone's seen the movie of um, Major League, where they build a really bad team to lose a lot, except there's a different upside at the end. But the idea being you're going to take advantage of this warped incentive system that the NBA has, where bad teams are rewarded with good draft picks. And the best way to get a superstar in the NBA is by drafting them. The best way to draft them is to be really bad. So we're going to build a team that's built to lose. And from there, we'll see what happens. And it sounded good, but the idea kind of triggered a culture war within the NBA, outside the NBA, among fans, media, and it created this whole hoopla circus that the Sixers are still dealing with today. So there are many, many, many things I loved about this book, but the one thing that kind of struck me as seminal and, and, and almost kind of like weirdly transcendent was the fact that this thing, the process, was almost like a religion, right? It, it demanded faith that this crazy-seeming notion would someday actually pay off in this messianic big reveal. It had like factions, it had haters, it had true believers as someone who's religious himself, like, is that something you grapple with as you were writing the book? Is that something that occurred to you? I mean, you do make some kind of reference to this being a very religious... Yeah, book. for sure. I mean, one of the um, the architect of the process, as you would say, Sam Hinkie, after he is ousted a few years in for a number of political reasons, this group of followers who... And it's kind of like described as a cult-like following. They literally hang a banner up. It's kind of like crucifixion, right? But they hang a banner up of uh, his face at events and at drafts. Fans are showing up at drafts wearing T-shirts that said, Hinky died for our sins. Things like that. No, for sure. It was definitely a religious comparison. It definitely reminded of religion. The unwavering faith in this plan and the need and the desire of the followers and fans to fight for it, for sure. The, there are tons of parallels. I, I totally get the Christ references, but the thing that I kept thinking as I was reading about Sam Hinkie is like, this guy is a great Hasidic master, right? He <laughs> has some kind of ecstatic truth. And also like the story that you tell, and, and you tell it kind of matter-of-factly, and, and you let the reader do the sort of emotional heavy lifting. But this guy, Sam Hinkie, you know, when he was 10, his brother killed himself in the next room of their house. And... Immediately, some family friend came and took him right and said, okay, like, let's sit and, and play some basketball now. And so he was almost like redeemed by this power of believing that things would eventually be right through basketball. It's really deep. I got to say, this is the first podcast I'd have where Sam Hinkie's been compared to a Hasidic leader. So that, that is different. We're breaking it. barriers here, my friend. I love it. Um, no, for sure. I mean, that's what's interesting about him. He's described for good reason often as this cold, calculating numbers guy. He came from, he had an MBA. He worked in some private equity stuff. The team was owned by private equity guys. But beneath it all, there was sort of this faith in the some of the cliches of sport and basketball, the healing power and how basketball can unite and bring people together and things like that. The example you gave being kind of the chief one. He defines labels and boxes, which makes him really interesting. And he's actually a religious guy too. I mean, part of what's so interesting about him is that if I tell you there's a guy who revolutionizes how sports teams are ran because he's all about numbers and he talks about Silicon Valley and acts like he's a Silicon Valley guy, you wouldn't expect that he grew up in a small town in Oklahoma playing like high school sports, right? They're just, he's not a 
cliche and he's not a stereotype and it's really interesting. And the faith part is certainly a big part of his life. Speaking of the faith part, I want to talk about you. Am I correct? You're Shabbat observant? I am, yeah. How has that impacted the way you cover basketball? I mean, there are a lot of games played on Friday nights, even Saturdays during the day. I mean, do you do you turn your phone on on Saturday evenings and sort of just like pray that nothing major happened? <laughs> yeah, that's the most praying I do really on over the weekends. It's definitely, it's different. The internet has helped a little bit in terms of that. I'm not a beat writer. I don't write for a newspaper that makes me cover something on a Friday night or Saturday. I don't have to turn in stories or go to games every Friday night or Saturday. I go to other games. There are times when you miss a lot and there are, you know, opportunities missed, whether it's something that a game or something happened where you could have been there or you can do an interview with a player, but they can only meet on uh, Rosh Hashanah, right? Like that happened to me once where like September, it was supposed to be a big magazine story and we had to move a different writer onto that. So things like that happen. There's definitely anxiety, I guess would be the word I use, right? Over the weekend or things are happening, you can kind of get into rhythms, but... In terms of missing news and stories, yeah, my whole thing's always been just, you're going to miss it, this is it. So the other six days a week, make sure I'm on or just do whatever I can those days and work around it. But it's definitely, um, I would say, and not hold me back, but it's definitely a barrier that I have to jump over a little bit in terms of getting things done. And you're not the only one who does that. And particularly in this universe of the Philadelphia 76ers, there's Ben Falk, who's an executive who is also Shomer Shabbos. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about him and whether you and he were able to sort of connect over that. Yes and no. We definitely connect over that. Ben, for those who don't know, Ben Falk is a former six executive. Like you said, he was Sam Hinkie's number three guy, right? There's a number two guy and a number three guy. Though the phrase number three guy doesn't have quite the same ring to it. Yeah, I mean, he's more stringent than me, not to get too deep into it, but in terms of like a good example is he, I heard stories where he would have his own microwave, either his own microwave, I'm going to butcher this, or he wouldn't put food in the microwave at like offices, things like that, something along those lines in terms of Kashrut and being really careful about that. He would wear his kippah to NBA events. I do not. It was interesting talking to people from Sixers land and them not being far into the concept of, oh, wait, Saturday doesn't work for you. Okay, cool. That's no problem. We're kind of used to that. In terms of Dewey Bond, I have to be careful. Like, you know, he didn't Interviews about the team with the Sixers, you know, those were kind of limited. Guys who former Sixers staffers weren't necessarily allowed to speak with me for the book for a host of reasons. The team was big on reminding former employees of any non-disclosure agreements they had in relation to their uh, buyouts. But him and I have shared many conversations about being Jewish in the NBA world and how that's different. It's interesting to hear you describe the difficulty in talking to people in, in the Sixers world as sort of just being kind of corporate NDA driven, because in the very beginning of the book, you kind of very winningly describe your efforts to talk to people who are close to Hinky and everyone says, yeah, sure, I'll talk to you. And then Hinky calls them up and then <laughs> two minutes later, it's like, I'm never going to talk to you. And, and you say something like, Hinky, what's what's going on here? And, and he texts you as something like, well, that's my community, you know, check your values. Like, why don't you have such a loyal following around you? And, and and like, that struck me as a very, kind of like very similar to sort of like the the world of particularly observant Jews, but not only. It's like, it's a very closed, tightly knit community. Everyone knows everything. You could call whoever you want and say, don't talk to the guy from the book. <laughs> Did you feel this way? So when you were reporting, it's like, well, I come from this world that's tightly knit. I'm reporting about this world that's tightly knit. Like, did that resonate? It's the network thing. The idea of having a network that you can rely on and you feel close to. 
and that network being even greater than just like, you know, your best friend growing up, right? I think that's something we often take for granted. You know, before the call, a bunch of us are talking and we know each other through X and Y and Z, and this is just how this world works, right? And I think that can be far and really interesting to people or different for people outside of the Jewish community. I mean, even the question about Ben Falk, right? The fact that him and I not only can relate to one another, but that there's mutual context and we don't come from the same place and we do things differently, yet we sort of do. We sort of know different same people. I mean, for sure, it's definitely interesting. I want to talk about the future of the NBA. Could it be that Denny Avdia is the future of the NBA? I did a story on him. I went to Israel and profiled him in September. And you always try to toe the line or balance the idea of talking to him as a person, and he's an 18-year-old kid, and what does that mean? Versus this thing that he's going to represent something, whether he's ready for it or not, the idea of being an Israeli and Jewish basketball player in the NBA, and try to make sure that I'm not just projecting my own views of whatever that means onto him. It'll be really interesting to see how he handles and processes all of that. So speaking of, of great, big, unwelcome burdens, I believe that you, like me, suffer from a fundamental character flaw, which is rooting for the god-awful, no-good, absolutely horrible New York Mets. <laughs> that, that's true. That, do I have that right? That, that, you do have that right, yes. <laughs> As we're speaking, it is reported that the Mets will most likely be bought by Steve Cohen, ah. the money dude. So... Two-part question. First of all, do you like this or will you totally team A-Rod and J-Lo? And second of all, <laughs> give us sort of like a, a, a religious, you know, rabbinic disposition here. Could there be any redemption in our lifetime or the lifetime of our children for this horrible baseball team? So the second part answer to your question is no, right? We'll just do that. But the, <laughs> the part that's funny about this is one of the groups that were interested in buying the Mets were the owners of the Sixers. He's got right. Josh Harris and David Blitzer, who are private equity, big wigs, or you can use a different adjective if you prefer, who were interested in buying the team. And that was bringing all sort of like conflicting emotions within me because I don't want to say I don't like them, but let's just say we've had professional issues and I don't necessarily stand for the same things that they stand for morally or ethically. So how's that for talking around it? Um, <laughs> but also as a Mets fan, I want somebody to own the team with money and then we'll spend money. Stephen A. Cohn seems like that. Again, I think we run into some of these same uh, moral and ethical issues and dilemmas where what are you going to separate? But again, I like my baseball team to uh, have money and be able to spend. I, don't, I do believe that these teams, they are a form of a public trust. Like owning a team is not a right, you know, so guys like the Mets current owners, the Wilpons, who essentially use the Mets as their bank and their ability to stay afloat after they were built in the, in the Madoff scheme. I'm happy to see them out. The A-Rod and J-Lo thing, as a reporter who enjoys a circus around the professional sports team, that would have been great. Again, as a fan, probably not ideal. But I guess it depends which hat you're wearing. What part of you is like reporter and what part of you is fan when it comes to like the Mets? You obviously don't write about baseball, but how do you find that line? And, and how do you, as someone who knows a sports reporter fairly intimately, how do you still watch sports for fun at the end of the day? So it's funny. Okay, so basketball, completely reporter. And that happened purposely. And also like I grew up a Knicks fan. One of my first teams I was covering was the Knicks. I will say if you're around that team pretty frequently or you're behind the scenes and you see how the sausage is made, that any um, fandom or love you have for that organization or franchise will be beaten from you really quickly, right? Really fast. So that was, you know, even if I went into it saying I'm going to be a Knicks fan and writing, I think it would have happened anyway. Um, they're just not enjoyable to be around. So there's that part. NBA, completely different. Baseball and football, what I have found is I've leaned into it almost accidentally. Like I've become such an obnoxious fan in those sports, maybe like overcompensating. Like I'm saying stupid things that like you would hear on WFAN in the afternoon, you know, some idiot calling up and saying, fire all these guys. Like, I'm just the one blazing curses and all these things. And the kind of things I would criticize if I heard an NBA fan say, I'm that person. So I guess that's how I get those juices out. Watching a game, 
it's the same thing, right? So watching non-basketball games, I'm just into it and angrier and just kind of, you know, gross. Um, basketball, yeah, I still enjoy it. I still like love the art of it and the strategy and, you know, I guess my brain and you would know this, right? Because your husband is as good as this as anybody. And I'm not just saying that, you know, finding, looking for story ideas and unique story ideas and trying to find, oh, that's something interesting I didn't think of. Let me see if I can go into that. So it's just a different lens on it, but um, still enjoy it. I guess we'll see. You know, I think the sports writers tend to get grouchier, like at the age of like 45, 50, that's when I usually... Well, thank you. I think angry and gross should be the two adjectives we take away from this interview. <laughs> Perfect. Yaron Weitzman. The book is tanking to the top. Our listeners can check out yaronweitzman.com and you all know how to spell that. But that will be in the show notes as well as your book information and your article on our, our new Israeli NBA star to be. Thank you. And I love it. Hasidim and Israeli basketball. It's great. It's my favorite podcast. <laughs> Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have, sadly, something in lieu of a mazel tov. A baruch Diana met a farewell to Phoenix Suns great Paul Westfall, who's our guest only a year ago in our live show in Phoenix. Paul was diagnosed with brain cancer in August last year and has passed away at 70. It was an honor to have met him, and may his memory be a blessing. I will say the greatest thing about meeting Paul Westfall was that he wore a camouflage hat, baseball hat that said Masada on it. He came to our Jewish podcast taping and wore that hat and told us how the Phoenix Suns used to practice in the previous JCC, confirming our, our, our long-held belief that all Gentiles play sports at the JCC, even at the highest levels. <laughs> Stephanie, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? I have a Mazel Tov. It is to Tablet's newest staffer. We are so, so, so excited to welcome Samantha Hacker. She is our first ever chief administrative officer, which is a very fancy sounding job. She comes to us from the moth and we're just so excited to have her on board. My Mazel Tov is to the recently graduated class of Tablet Fellows. These were not interns. These were fellows because it's sort of like an internship plus. And we had 10 terrific aspiring journalists who were with us for October, November, and December. Many of them wrote articles for us. They did fact checking for us. They uh, did research for us and they really became part of the community, even though we never met them in person. I I'm really sad to see them go. Although I'm excited that we have an incoming class of fellows, which we will be selecting soon. We already have a lot of applications for a spring term fellowship. You know what? If I got more applications by this weekend, we would read them, even though the deadline is Monday, January 4th. If you're hearing this on Thursday, you can go to Tablet's website. You can read about our fellowship. And if somebody gets us something in by Sunday, we will consider it. So just a, a big mazel tov to the fellows past and fellows future. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. If you would like to receive our newsletter, which you ought, subscribe at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. To advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman-Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music by Golem. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic Supervision by Rabbi Tali Adler. Our SoFair this week is Alana Lieberson-Weiss. We come to you still from the scattered locations of tablet studios across the land. Shalom, friends.
I'm still stuck on the full Luxembourg thing. I want to know what it is. Can it be shown on primetime television? It's whatever you wear. It's Rosa Luxembourg in a bikini. 